Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce. Welcome to another episode of Everything You Wanted to Know About Paraphilia But Were Too Horny to Ask. Actually, that was pretty unprofessional of me. Actually, this is a very professional interview. Well, I mean, professional as in I'm speaking with a professor. And this professor's name is John Michael Bailey. John Michael Bailey is a psychologist professor, or professor of psychology and researcher in sexology. He's based out of Northwestern University, just north of Chicago, Illinois, in Evans. Illinois. He's actually got some history to him. He was the subject of Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger, which charts the problems that he had in presenting research that he found about autogynephilia um, and the backlash that he received specifically from certain members of the trans community. In this interview, we speak at length about autogynephilia and we talk about different forms of gender dysphoria and how how they arise differently within men and women. This is uh, this is one of the backbone episodes of this entire series, as it you know it brings in a lot of the information and the research that's going on with regards to the topics that are covered in this gender, sexuality, and transsexual discussion or transgender discussion interview series. So here is John Michael Bailey. Uh, get out your notebook and strap on in. Uh, not on, but in. That was unprofessional, wasn't it? Would you say that your primary area of expertise is sexology or more psychology? Because I know you're known for your work with uh, sexuality. Well, I, you know, I, I did uh, learn a lot of stuff before I uh, specialized in sexology, but certainly my uh, uh, research career has been primarily uh in the realm of sex research. Mm -hmm. I, I have areas of expertise uh, mm -hmm. uh, beyond that. Uh, for example, I, I started off studying IQ, uh, and I know a lot about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I've even published some stuff on IQ. Uh, but uh, yeah, I uh, in, in graduate school, when I was applying to uh, academic jobs, I said, well, maybe I'll study IQ or even, you know, race and IQ or, or more likely I'll study sexual orientation because that's mm. what I was doing my dissertation on. And I have taken uh, the less controversial route, uh, although it's funny <laughs> By to a think hair. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think um, uh, sex research has been impacted by the uh, kind of the political economy right now in public discourse? Are you are you fearful of uh, what's happening uh, uh, about what's uh, what's being allowed to be researched and what's being silenced with sex? So the word fearful, I want to clarify, you know, I'm, I'm I have tenure. Uh, I'm an expert. Uh, I've been uh, attacked in, in ways that did make me fearful in the past uh, for my job even uh, and I have come through and uh, nothing that is likely to happen mm -hmm. is going to make me f as fearful as that I am uh, afraid for uh, our collective future hmm. uh, in terms of uh, learning important things and uh, and believing what is true as opposed to what uh, hmm. uh, what, uh, what various subgroups want us to believe. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid for that. Mm -hmm. And with regards to uh, sexuality, I, I have some questions specifically concerning um, the work that I'm doing with uh, the transgender uh, discussion. 
uh, I don't want to call it an issue, but uh, the field of uh, discourse uh, around trans issues. And I was going through the literature, and I'm not very well researched at all, um, but it seems like there's a lot of research into male gender dysphoria. And is it even or is it uneven as opposed to what's been researched with female dysphoria? Um, I, and I asked that to preface, like, what are the differences uh, that, that you know of and that have been studied between how a, a male, uh, especially a young male in, in the early teens, experiences dysphoria as opposed to a female? So uh, I'm going to send you a link to an article uh, that uh, perhaps you'll post uh, the link to for your uh, viewers uh, that the title of the blog that uh, I co-authored with Ray Blanchard is um, uh, Gender Dysphoria is Not uh, One Thing. Mm. Uh, there's, there's more than uh, one kind. And yeah. um, <clears throat> there are, um, I, I think, three kinds that are... Uh, happening at appreciable rates now. Hmm. Uh, the the first uh, kind happens in both males and females, uh, and it is the child onset. It's the kind that is, I think, the most uh, familiar with uh, people people's narratives anyway, and that, that, that's a, you know, a little kid who uh, is acts like the other sex, and they may even want to they may even say they want to be the other sex or that they are the other sex mm -hmm. uh so that's child onset gender dysphoria and uh in the past that is in america that's been uh more common in in males than females uh though that may um reflect uh selection bias in that parents may be more disturbed when that happens in a boy than mm -hmm. in a girl so they might be more likely to take them to treatment okay yeah uh and that that uh type is strongly associated with um adult uh homosexuality with respect to birth sex so the little boys mm -hmm. uh tend to grow up to be gay men and the uh, little girls who want to be boys are much more likely than other girls to grow up to be lesbian, although uh, that they're less likely than boys hmm. to grow up to be same-sex attracted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's type one, uh, and that type has been uh, studied the longest. Uh, then I'm going to skip to type three. Uh, type three is uh, what I would call rapid onset gender dysphoria, and that's uh, the type in which uh, nobody knew that somebody uh, had any kind of gender issues until they came out suddenly, mm -hmm. typically during adolescence. And this is most likely to be a female. Hmm. And this kind of gender dysphoria in females, there is little evidence that it happened before 10 years ago. Really? And it has, it, yes. And it has exploded hmm. to be the most common kind. Uh, some of us believe that this is a socially contagious phenomenon uh, that uh, in in which um, adolescents typically uh, become convinced that they have something they don't have, hmm. and you know they 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 acquire these beliefs through uh, social influences and, and also um, because of a cachet you know they they're it's cool it's cool to be transgender you mm -hmm. know yeah uh hmm. so this this kind really needs studying and, and these are you know 
these uh, people with this dysphoria, it's serious with them and they want to get surgery uh, and they want to get hormones and they sometimes do. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, I think if, if I'm right, uh, that it's kind of, it's, uh, acquired unnecessarily that it's a tragedy by the way you're you're young and and uh, I don't know how much you know about this but I think that this uh, there are important parallels between this uh, phenomenon which I think is socially contagious and something that happened in the 80s and 90s called uh, recovered memories mm. of sexual abuse mm -hmm. do you know about that yeah yeah and that was um, an epidemic of, uh, and it, it, there was there were two epidemics. There were recovered memories of sexual abuse, and there were there was an epidemic of multiple personality uh, disorder yeah. that was uh, invariably associated with those recovered memories, and uh, those were also uh, uh, socially contagious epidemics of false belief. Uh, and primarily in women and so on. Why do you think that women are more susceptible to socially constructed um, uh, beliefs that take on a pathological nature? Uh, it is a good question. Uh, and I do think that, uh, I mean, just based on those two <laughs> examples. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I, I don't have a good answer, and so I, I will uh, okay. defer for now. Uh, and the third kind, the third kind of gender dysphoria, which uh, I know you've uh, had a guest on your uh, uh, show, uh, show, and and you've also had James Cantor, who probably talked about, it, although maybe he didn't, because he was talking about pedophilia for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, this the third kind only occurs in people born male, hmm. uh, and it is uh, what we call autogynophilic yeah. uh, gender dysphoria, and uh, it is um, it begins uh, during adolescence. Uh, I'm sorry, autogynophilia is a sexual condition. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like a sexual orientation. And it's really weird for most people uh, to conceptualize it. Yes, and and here's here's the best way to conceptualize it. Hmm. Most men are attracted to women, right? Yeah. So an autogynophilic male is attracted to women, but for some poorly understood reason, mm -hmm. he inverts the female target. He's yeah. attracted to, to inside himself. And he creates this persona, uh, a female hmm. identity that hmm. is his primary uh, love object. Yeah. And, and um, that uh, is, uh, so the, the autogynophilia is first noticeable in adolescence. Uh, and the typical first um, sign of it is when an adolescent boy discovers that it really turns him on to put on his mm -hmm. sister's or mother's lingerie and look at himself in the mirror and masturbate. Mm -hmm. Now, he doesn't tell anybody, least of all his parents, that <laughs> he's doing this. Uh, these days, he's likely to get on the Internet and, and learn, in scare quotes, that he's uh, really a woman trapped in a man's body, and then he might tell his parents that I, that he's trans. Uh, and uh, to the parents, this this appears to be rapid onset. They've never okay. heard yeah. of this before. Uh, but it's not the same phenomenon as happens in females who under who have uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And how do we tell this the is, difference? Then? <clears throat> well, I, I would say uh, a a good guide is: was this person born a male or a female? If born hmm. a male, then it's likely autogynophilic, uh, and if it's born a female, it's likely uh, the other kind. Hmm. 
Hmm. Um, is there a uh, lack yeah. of sexual, uh, insofar as you know the studies, is there a lack of sexual component in generally construed female uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria? It, it lacks that sexual component, whereas the male autogynephilic has a, a sex, uh, begins having a sexual relationship with themselves as a woman. Yeah, there, there's no uh, evidence that for the rapid onset in natal females that there's any kind of sexual motivation. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, and again, uh, the, the one published study about rapid onset in females uh, shows, uh, and it, it's not a, you know, it's not a random, randomized uh, sample or, or a, mm-hmm. you know, representative sample, uh, as it couldn't be. Uh, but uh, the investigator, Lisa Lippman, found uh, uh, lots of cases where there are two, three, four, five uh, girls in a social group who okay. all became trans in the last year? Mm-hmm. You know that that's the that's the chances of that happening hmm. without social contagion contagion are infinitesimal. So. Hmm. It that what you brought up about target um, there I don't know the phrase but like t- a target eroticism or or like having a, a target of one's desire. Yes, uh, that that is so. Uh, Ray Blanchard has uh, coined the term erotic target location error. And uh, and there's an analogous, um, more specific version, which is erotic uh, target identity inversion. The mm-hmm. latter means the target is inverted into the self. Mm-hmm. Whereas the former erotic target uh, location error yeah. could include, for example, being attracted to feet. <laughs> okay. You yeah. know, uh, uh, so other people's feet. Uh, whereas the hmm. uh, erotic target identity inversion is always uh, inverting it to the self. And would it be. Um proper, I, I guess proper is not the right term because everything we're talking about is improper to one degree or another, but my general understanding of males is that the uh, the target, the erotic target uh, mechanism is uh, very focused um, as opposed to generally a, a, a female is more diffuse. Is that something that has been studied in how the sexes manifest a target um, erotic target Locationization. Yes, uh, my my lab actually I think uh, studied that uh, hmm. first systematically. Uh, my then graduate student Meredith Chivers for her dissertation uh, did. Uh, we did some studies in which we uh, showed that men uh, their sexual arousal patterns closely track their sexual orientations. That is, if we show, if we bring men into the lab and we show them videos that have either men only uh, interacting sexually or women only hmm. interacting sexually, uh, men are very predictable in how they respond and, and re- their response is both self-rating or getting erections. Uh, straight men, straight men respond to the women, gay men respond to the men. Mm-hmm. Women are much different. Uh, uh, and in particular, straight women respond indifferently. They hmm. respond just as much to the females as to the males. Lesbians do have a slightly biased response pattern toward, uh, the female stimuli. This is consistent with the fact that uh, men, but not women, uh, have uh, paraphilias. Uh, Paraphilias are these uh, unusual and sometimes uh, harmful or disturbing, at least, uh, sexual interests, Mm -hmm. uh, like um, 
pedophilia uh, or uh, like a fetish of some uh, sort. A fetish, exactly. And and these, you know, people when they discover they have these, they typically don't want to have them. Hmm. You know, they would like not to have them, and but they don't go away. Uh, hmm. At least that you, it's hard to make them go away. And and you know, women don't seem to have these persistent, uh, strong, weird sexual interests hmm. the way that men do. Is it because female sexuality is contextualized differently or more contextual rather than a male's sexuality being more, I want to have sex with this thing, I want to impregnate this thing, whether consciously or not? Like the target is like, I'm going to go put my thing in there. Whereas a woman has a different uh, way of experiencing uh, desire. So I, I can speculate. Okay. Uh, so let's think about evolution. Uh, evolutionarily, uh, a male's sexual arousal serves two functions. Uh, one of which a male has to become sexually aroused in order to have intercourse, okay. which and and that that's necessary in order to uh, reproduce. But for a male, also uh, sexual arousal is motivating. It's like, hey, you like that? Go get it. Huh. <laughs> whereas whereas for females, uh, you know, it's also good to be uh, sexually aroused in the context of possible intercourse because that's protective. But it's not. Uh, I think adaptive for a woman to see a kind of person who's attractive and hmm. become sexually aroused in order to go get it. That that would be uh, maladaptive, I think, in in her interests. Women should have evolved to be uh, fairly cautious, and I think that that's how hmm. they are. Yeah, on average. Hmm. So I wonder how. Um just taking what we just spoke about um, maps on to the difference in um, gender dysphoria in teens and how females uh, seem to, at least with the rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I, I, another question we should get into in, is how do we diagnose gender dysphoria as something as a social contagion versus something that would be actually helpful for somebody to go through the process of transition, specifically a woman? Um, but uh, how do you, how, how does that evolutionary or sexual proclivity of women um, inform the kind of the social uh, aspect of gender dysphoria as it's manifested in the last 10 years? Well, I, I'm not sure that there's a, a good answer to that. I think what, 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 is, what there is a connection to is uh, males and autogynophilia, because I think autogynophilia is uh, a sexual orientation, which for some reason, once males develop a sexual orientation, uh, it's there. And hmm. it, it's very, very uh, difficult. It's, it's impossible, as far as we know, to reroute it. Hmm. Uh, I think it's probably a developmental uh, aspect of the brain. Uh, and once it's there, it's there. Uh, and uh, now, I do want to make it clear that not all uh, males who have autogynophilia are gender dysphoric. Uh, that's a subset, and we don't know what percentage of males who have autogynophilia who are uh, relatively contented just uh, uh, having their fantasies about, or you know, cross-dressing in private, having mm -hmm. fantasies about being women versus really yearning to be a woman so much that they uh, take steps. Uh, but anyway, I, th I think that's uh, strongly integrated into hmm. uh, the male uh, uh, target uh, location and uh, it's fixed and uh, hmm. uh, I don't, and I don't think that female, gen the rapid onset female gender dysphoria has much to do with sexuality, at least with sexual orientation. Uh, I, although you do, in fact, uh, get a higher rate among the female uh, uh, rapid onset cases 
who do not identify as heterosexual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's not surprising to me uh, that because, you know, women, I don't think are as, women's sexual identity is not as dri- driven by some kind of uh, hmm. fixed, strong sex drive as men's is. Hmm. Um, it does seem... So I... Yeah. From the very, very, very small subset of people that I've spoken to, which is like a N of three right now, and I'll have one more, which is the rapid onset people who, young women who are identifying as uh, ra- ha- suffering from rapid onset gender dysphoria in their teens. And, and I've asked each of them so far um, when they did, um, you know, manifest uh, wanting to become a man if they constructed a man that they wanted to be and to what extent they constructed this personality. And um, I haven't gotten a lot of data on that, but it doesn't seem, it seems stronger in male um, in males that they construct this identity and that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of onus or pressure to really become that, that female that they, they, that they fall in love with. And one interpretation that I've heard, um, maybe you can argue for or against this is that a, a male autogynephiliac, um, falls in love with the female version of himself and then becomes very protective of that female version of himself and acts as like the, the suitor and the protector, almost like they're married to themselves in a way. And, and there's almost a slight split in, or this mirroring of how one behaves towards themselves as a woman. And it doesn't seem as strong in females. Well, that does ring true to what you say about males. Although, you know, when you say the female version of oneself, I'm not sure Hmm. what that, what that means or if that's true. Uh, It's Hmm. certainly a, a female. Okay. Uh, who they uh, would like to be, uh, and, but I do think that it's you do get this strong um, uh, motivation, uh, and it is protective. But uh, natal females don't. It's that's not the way gender mm. dysphoria works for females. So it doesn't map on. Mm. You can't really compare them directly. So when uh, you yeah. spoke of three different uh, types of transgender, um, is there a female equivalent to the autogynephiliac? Um, um, so as opposed to the rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yeah, I do. I do want to uh, say that um, the science uh, on this, there are lots of questions that are, mm unanswered and whether there is uh, a female version which would be auto androphilia yeah okay uh is, is controversial uh and you know there's there's not one that has been so obvious that everybody agrees that it happens hmm. uh we we in, in the article that i'll send you uh uh, we we talk about one other kind that is uh, seems to be rare, uh, hmm. and uh, boy, I wonder if I can even remember the name. This Ray Blanchard, my co-author, uh, has written articles about it, and and uh, I'm not going to even try to uh, remember the name right now. But I'll tell you what it is. This happens only in natal females okay. and they become aroused to the idea of becoming gay men. Mm. And so what turns them on is the idea of being men, men having sex with other men. Hmm. And there are some cases where they transition for that reason. How do we, how do we, um, tell the difference between something that turns one on in the moment uh, as opposed to an orientation. Like if, if I were to read an erotic story that turned me on, that doesn't necessarily mean that that situation is my orientation. Um, or do you think that the orientation is pretty bound up in what turns us on and is what turns us on 
pretty much uh, persistent throughout our, our lives. Well, uh, let's take men uh, because they're the easier case. Um, I, I think the the easy the easiest case is you know homosexual versus heterosexual, and the easiest way to diagnose that is you know mm-hmm. when you masturbate, who do you think about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that tends to be extremely persistent across occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, bisexuals, uh, uh, you know, are going to switch off some. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, another case that is uh, easy uh, is uh, pedophiles who always fantasize about children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I know, uh, uh, I know some pedophiles, uh, through the internet who, uh, uh, who actually have never, uh, had interactions sexually with children. They, they have, uh, formed the group virtuous pedophiles. Yeah. Uh, they help pedophiles lead a uh, a celibate life, <clears throat> but but they they have uh, you know attractions to children, and they believe that it's okay to have fantasies as long as they don't uh, act on them. And w- one of them is married uh, to a woman, and and he uh, says he enjoyed his sex life with his wife. Uh, but I say, well, you know. Okay, when you masturbate, how often do you think of women? He says never. Mm. <laughs> He's always thinking, always thinking of twelve-year-old, twelve-year-old boys. About you know, so uh, that's uh, I think strong evidence that it's like an orientation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, autogynephilia. It's it's usually men thinking of themselves as as women. Okay. Uh, so a persistence over time. Yeah. What do you think about yeah. the, um, what do you think about, we, we kind of started off by talking about the internet a little bit and, and social media a little bit. And one large part of the internet is, you know, pornography. And what are your thoughts on the way that, in which pornography shapes one's sexuality? And what are your thoughts on uh, people now uh, growing up are exposed to pornography, uh, limitless amounts, uh, basically all the time, anytime that they want it? Um, there, there is quite a controversy uh, that I have seen. I, I run a sex research listserv uh, that I, I have lots of uh, sex researchers on there mm-hmm. discussing various controversies. And one of the controversies uh, over the past decade has been uh, whether uh, pornography leads to various problems. Uh, and I must say that I thought it was plausible that it did, but I uh, really think that uh, the evidence is that it doesn't cause uh, lots of problems <laughs> for people. Hmm. Uh, and I certainly think that it's unlikely to affect anybody's sexual orientation. The Except that I do think it's... People have weird interests. Um, the internet is gonna—it's gonna help them find out what those interests might mm. be. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are uh, websites devoted to uh, images of men being consumed by giant women. Mm-hmm. For example, that are sexual. There, you know, there's uh, furry porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, these things didn't exist hmm. uh, before the internet. That is, uh, when I say these things, I mean uh, uh, repository of yes. images that were easy to find. And you know, th- whether these interests existed before the internet, I don't know. Uh, it's possible the internet. Is, has led to 
new weird sexual interests that never existed before. It's possible. I mean, we'll never know. Uh, but I do think that the internet al allows people with unusual sexual interests to find other people <laughs> to share uh, uh, erotica with, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and and I suppose I find that to be a, a good thing uh, because <laughs> it must be uh, rewarding for people to find out what really turns them on. Now, obviously, we don't want uh, uh, people doing harmful things to other people or even themselves uh, hmm. uh, for sexual reasons, but, you know, a lot of this stuff uh, has no clear harm. It's just weird. So you don't think that exposure to pornography uh, is ne necessarily detrimental to, let's just say, a young man, um, his expectations for women and his expectations of the contextualizing sexuality within a long-term relationship or as an act of something other than sexual gratification? So I think... Men have problems. Uh, hmm. Some men, some men have problems uh, maintaining uh, sexual pleasure in a long-term relationship, and I think that those problems existed a long time before hmm. uh, the internet. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I see no no good evidence that hmm. those problems have increased because of the internet. Uh, you know, I, that's when I said I found it plausible that maybe uh, porn could cause problems. That That's what I had in mind, that okay. kind of thing. Like, you know, you could have, you can watch porn stars do whatever you want, you know, who's going to be satisfied. But, you know, really, I think you give most uh, teenage boys the choice between watching, uh, choosing any porn that they want to watch and having sex with a real person mm -hmm. uh, who's attractive to them. And I, I would uh, be shocked if many people chose the porn. Hmm. So um, back to gender dysphoria. And um, I did want to bring up, I have a friend who is warning me not to go too far with rapid onset gender dysphoria because she, from her research, she says that there's not a lot. Um, it's not really set in stone yet. It's not something that we have enough research on. Do you think that we do have enough research on rapid onset gender dysphoria as a social contagion? And what would be some ways to uh, combat that if it is something that can lead to harm for young people? So I want to distinguish between... <clears throat> My hunch, which is strongly that rapid onset gender dysphoria is a thing and it is socially contagious, and uh, a scientific position, which I would certainly not say has been well established. There's only been one published study, which has been uh, savagely attacked and people have tried to get it depublished, which I think is terrible. Uh, and and biased, you know, the early studies of phenomenon are going to be scientifically limited. You know, you have to start somewhere. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think that the this first study, which uh, I will send to you again, I don't know if you post links or whatever, but yeah, I will. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, definitely has very concerning. Uh, findings uh, consistent with this hypothesis, but um, we should be studying it, and what we should not be doing is committing for ideological reasons to either conclusion that it that it is the explanation or it can't be the explanation. Okay, yeah, okay. And, and, right, and right now, that's what people are, uh, you know, I, I will say that's one side. One side is trying to silence the idea of socially contagious rapid onset gender dysphoria. Lisa Littman, who published a study of that, she is 
very open-minded and you read the article she says you know i know there are limitations uh we have to study this farther and to me you know it's very revealing Hmm. who tries to shut whom up yeah and and you know that that is a sign Mm -hmm. uh that somebody is not playing by the right intellectual rules Hmm. uh and that they're worried that they're wrong well, why would – because you've been in a very similar position. I mean, I don't know how similar, but people came after you when you published uh, The Man Who Would Be Queen. Uh, and you got pretty uh, – I, I read uh, Alice Drager's book um, in which you were featured. Um, and you were vilified quite strongly by individuals within the – I guess the trans lobby. Uh, and it seems like the same pattern of behavior – is arising with regards to rapid onset gender dysphoria. And the uh, they're more entrenched now, so they have the mechanisms and the power to actually shut down research and, and cause articles to be retracted. What are your thoughts on, one, why people are so strong against research into this? What What's at stake for them if these ideas take root? And uh, I forgot the other question, but oh, what what are some ways that we get around that? Or what are the tools that you went through to, like, dispel that? Do you just have to trust that other people are going to eventually come to your aid? Or <laughs> um, So I, I think that trusting that people are going to eventually come to your aid is not a very uh, good uh, position. I was fortunate enough to uh, meet Alice Drager and uh, get, and you know, she was uh, not only intellectually interested. She's she's a she has an activist side. She's worried about fairness, and she thought I was mm. being treated unfairly. And I'm mm. I will uh, forever be forever be in her debt for that. Uh, but I was lucky. Hmm. Uh, I, I think that um, the one thing that, you know, I, I think these are dark times, but the one thing hmm. that I, I do feel good about, and that is people like you hmm. uh, uh, online sites like Quillette. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, other intellectual influences are there people are concerned and they're speaking up Mm -hmm. and they see they see similar things and and that makes me that makes me feel good Hmm. um so uh i think that the other question that you were asking i will uh i'm going to say briefly talk about it uh and you can decide whether you want me to talk more about it but there's Hmm. kind of a sociology of transgender activism that is very interesting uh and here here it is here's my take the uh you you so you have this uh activist woke academic uh cadre uh that in you know all the gender studies types and and mm-hmm. so on and and they influence other people you know my my uh, graduate students in my program are very smart and reasonable people for the most part but they, i think their knee-jerk reactions have been changed uh to you know let's support the transgender no matter what they say, okay. and, and they're, you know, they're susceptible to rational argument, but that's their first response. Uh, so you have the, but, but the, uh, the main activists are uh, people who I, uh, who have an autogynophilic background. These are uh, uh, males who uh, were not child onset, uh, many of them used to be married. Uh, I believe that they are uh, mostly autogynophilic, although not a one of them uh, admits it. 
Uh, and so why are they doing this? And so why are they trying to weigh in on uh, adolescent girls' gender dysphoria? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think part of it is that they would like everybody to, to believe that there's only one kind of gender dysphoria and they're just like everybody else. And because I think part of their uh, dislike of the idea of autogynephilia is that they believe, uh, and I think with some reason, that people uh, who hear about autogynephilia think that it's weird. Uh, people don't like sexual motivation. Anything hmm. that's sexually motivated must be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other uh, hesitation among autogynephilic males to uh, embrace the idea of autogynephilia is that uh, it is a narcissistic injury. Uh, Autogynephilia is love of oneself as a woman, literally. And and the theory of autogynephilia is that, well, it's not really that you're a woman, you're a, a male who has this paraphilia. Mm. Uh, with a, an erotic target location error, mm-hmm. uh, which that's not how they want to think of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do, so I want to make sure that people know that many, uh, an autogynophilic male wishes autogynephilia were spoken about publicly more often. They think that these deniers are closet cases, as as I think they are. Uh, They think that they're Mm. uh, wrong, as I think they are. And the uh, deniers are cruel in uh, suppressing and attacking those who uh, find value in the idea of autogynephilia. I've gotten oodles of private correspondence from uh, autogynephilic males who read my book and said, oh, this, you know, so many of them say, I never knew this is what I had before. Mm. I'm so happy to finally understand myself. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and some others say, you know, I've always thought of myself that way. I'm glad that somebody finally said it. So this is not about uh, people, I think, are autogynephilic versus uh, uh, me. This is about people, I think, who are in denial about their autogynephilia versus people who uh, are not in denial about their autogynephilia and the best way to help them. And, you know, we can't really know the best way to help people with autogynephilia unless we mm. study it. And, and we can't study it if we deny it happens. Mm-hmm. What is this other component that's added to it? Um, when you take autogynephilia and then you wed it to uh, woke activist culture, and you get um, these very strong voices that demand not only that society forever see them as female or what they want to identify as, but even science uh, needs to identify themselves, or science needs to be thrown out because it's science doesn't identify them as female. I just, I almost got into an argument, and I, trink, I tried to sidestep it, where somebody came, popped up in my mentions on Twitter, and um, kept on using this phrase, assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth, and it was just <laughs> like clogging up the whole thing. I'm like, no, you're assigned female at fertilization. That's when the X chromosome or the Y chromosome <laughs> yeah. comes to be. So why, why is it so important that uh, it just seems there's there's some sort of difference between somebody who has an erotic relationship with themselves as a woman. There's a difference between that and somebody who it's not it doesn't seem erotic. It seems it seems of another nature that they want the the world, the entire world from their DNA to society at large to see them and to affirm them in their chosen gender. So there, there are 
two separate groups to uh, distinguish here. And, and uh, the motivations of the autogonophilic uh, person I have mentioned before, which is they, uh, they which are that they, they uh, are, feel stigmatized because it's about sex and yeah. it's a narcissistic injury. So they would like this not this idea to go away. But remember, in uh, the woke culture, most of the activists are not. So most activists who speak out on campus about transgender are not themselves transgender. There's this huge mm. group of Allies. wokies. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and they, uh, you know, are mostly protective of the feelings of the transgender. They also, though, and this is something I've noticed since I've been uh, writing about this uh, almost 20 years now, mm-hmm. that uh, people don't like to think that they've been made fools of. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the if autogynephilia is the true explanation, and yet somebody has been saying that, well, they're you know, women trapped in men's bodies, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're fools mm. uh, for saying that, so that's uh, especially, if, especially if they have the opportunity to know better, which they have. Hmm. So. But what, what a, why is it so important that society and reality change? Uh, I guess I get, maybe that's, you're explaining that. So it you just mean, seems so, so you, you mean why? Hmm. It's so important well, I, that everybody bows down to the identity, the identification of somebody is up for them, and then everybody else has to change. The world has to change. Well, so autogynephilic transsexuals, who I do think are, are the ones who are driving this um, insistence that somebody says they're a woman, they're a woman, or, you know... Uh, mm-hmm. They want to be a woman, you know, that they're that motivation is extremely strong. And, and they have, you know, they're in the candy store right now. They, they actually have the hmm. ability to achieve that. But it's not just about sex, then it's about status. It's about it's it's not just a sexual orientation. It's a societal orientation. Like they want to be a woman 24 seven, not just when they're trying to have an orgasm. Right. So. It seems like yeah, no longer no, just a paraphilia. Yeah. So this idea that it's—I'm glad you raised that—and uh, I never meant to suggest that this uh, was only relevant during uh, oh, okay. an explicit sexual uh, act. Um, okay. You know, th- so. I let's I don't know your sexuality, but let's let's assume for the sake of argument that you're a straight man. Uh, you know, hmm. your your sexuality affects you so much more than during the time you're having sex. I mean, you you, you would go out on dates with attractive people. You would eventually. Uh, uh, you know, you would have a long-term relationship with a woman, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I got to So the Anne Lawrence, uh, is a brilliant, uh, autogynephilic, uh, transsexual who, uh, is, uh, the leading scholar of autogynephilia since Ray Blanchard has stopped, uh, studying that. Uh, and she wrote uh, a great article uh, entitled Becoming What We Love, in which she said exactly that. It's not just about the sex act. Okay. Uh, autogynephilic transsexuals become romantically attached to their persona, mm-hmm. their female identities. Um, and I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, and, and yeah. So in 
When I first, I, I was going to a very liberal, liberal arts college um, just down the road from me. And out of nowhere, probably in 2016, uh, everybody started to having, to, it was mandatory for everybody to declare their, um, their pronouns. And it came out of nowhere for me. And my first reaction to that, because um, I had known transgender people before then, and I was okay with, you know, changing their pronouns and, and, and uh, at least verbally um, align, aligning myself with their wishes. Um, but all of a sudden it came out of nowhere and it seemed <laughs> like there's this push. And my, my reaction was that I, I'm not going to just go with the party line and um, affirm somebody's uh, game. I'm not just going to play their, their game because it seemed like to me like we're just going to play this gender game. We're going to throw out gender and sex and it's all fluid now. And you get to choose whatever room you walk into, you can choose your gender. That's not how it works for me. Um, and I, I had some resistance for that. I still feel some resistance to that. Um, but in your opinion, how far should society go to make somebody who is suffering, who is autogynephilic or who is transgender, how far should we go um, to accommodate them? Uh, should we change our language? Uh, should we um, should women give up their private spaces and allow transgender women into there? And I, I and the extreme example would be sports. Um, so where do you draw the line, and how do we navigate that? So um, pronouns uh, are easy to avoid one-on-one. -on -one. The only pronoun you need is you, which mm. is not gendered uh, in English anyway. Mm. Uh, so in the situations where I've uh, interacted with people with pronouns, I've never actually mm. had an issue. I suppose one could, you know, if one were writing about somebody, uh, and uh, I don't guess I've ever had to confront that in the sense that, um, so the trans, transsexual women, the trans women who I have known, these are people born male, uh, who've, uh, transitioned to female. I've called she and, uh, never resented it. Uh, they have uniformly been mm -hmm. taking very extreme steps. I mean, they've lived, been living full time as women when I met them and, yeah. uh, uh, and are clearly trying to present as women some pretty successfully. Uh, I, uh, hmm. just to, just to be nice, I, I, I do that, but you know, I would, somebody said, you know, Want you to call me Jesus Christ? I would probably do that, like you know, one on one, hmm. uh, you know, just to be nice. Uh, it doesn't really. I, I think that the the problem comes in when not only are we required to use a certain, or not, a, we're pressured to use a certain way of addressing them, but. Um, hmm. A way of thinking about them, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and that uh, I think mm. is outrageous because mm. uh, you know I, I, uh, I I'm an expert in this. Uh, nobody has offered any evidence that uh, my hypotheses or the hypotheses that I have are likely incorrect. And uh, mm. you know, an autogynephilic male may decide to identify as a female and, and uh, okay yeah i'll say uh you know caitlin jenner is a woman she blah 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 but what i won't believe for a second and i uh, will uh go on record I'll, I'll give you all the reasons why not i don't think caitlin jenner has anything like the mind or the brain of a woman <laughs> hmm. uh, i i think she's entirely differently motivated and and uh uh, mm. Yeah, and it's it's still a separate question whether uh, somebody when they if they decide they're a, a woman, uh, 
should they, and if so, when, be allowed to use the same bathroom as women who might also be in the room? You know, I, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a different question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so autogynephilia, is that distinct from gender dysphoria? So gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria, again, is an umbrella term that uh, includes uh, more than one kind of gender dysphoria. There are at least three. Autogynephilia can exist without being gender dysphoria. Okay. Uh, So I I know some autogynephilic males who are really still turned on by cross-dressing and engaging in female activities, including mm. uh, I know one who routinely uh, cross-dresses and has sex with men. He's not attracted to men. It just turns him on to be <laughs> cross-dressed and have sex with men. Hmm. Uh, but he has no uh, strong desire to become a woman, to transition. He, you know, he's not unhappy yeah. being a man. Well, the the question is, is that if somebody is suffering from a condition such as autogynephilia and we want to, no, sorry, uh, gender dysphoria, and we want to take steps <coughs> to ease their suffering, then they, there's a bunch of transition that they can do. And then there's a bunch of uh, ways of uh, acting towards them that we can do as a society to, to ease their, uh, to ease their pain, which just seems different. Easing the, the dysphoria is one thing as opposed to the autogynephilia. And I wonder if there isn't some um, reluctance or strong resistance against the against the designation of autogynephilia because it it denigrates the the psychological suffering of somebody who really does feel like they're they're in the wrong body and that they 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 can't see themselves as that without suffering. So I, I just don't like the way you hmm. talk about that, which is common. Like feel like they're in the wrong body. What does that mean? Okay. What I, what I would say is that they really want to be in a female body. Okay. That's that's different than being in the wrong body because it implies uh, that you that being in the wrong body, I think people hear that as like being born in the wrong body, like a mismatch of brain and okay. body. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, wanting a female body is desire. Yeah, but what about uh, and, disgust with one's male form, though? That's different, though, like an auto-androphobia. Uh, um, yeah, that it is different, and, and that sometimes happens, uh, hmm. though n- not always. Hmm. Um, uh, but that can happen. Uh, you know, the thing is, uh, hmm. you, you raise the issue... Uh, specifically, but I'm going to raise it generally, and that is uh, how what should happen to gender dysphoric people? What What is the best result? And the answer is almost certainly uh, it depends. <laughs> uh, and it depends uh, first on what kind of gender dysphoria they have and, and then on uh, differences within the gender dysphoric category. Uh, you know, for the child onset, until fairly recently, uh, most of them have desisted. That is, mm. uh, most little most little boys who want to be girls became okay being male, and and mm-hmm. similarly for little girls who wanted to be boys, they became okay being female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a better result not to get a not to get sex reassignment surgery and have to be on hormones forever if one can be happy with one's Hmm. uh, original body. Uh, Rapid onset gender dysphoria, uh, my strong hunch is that this is a terrible epidemic Hmm. that uh, is causing useless, needless uh, uh, medical intervention. And that's all bad. Uh, autogynephilia is the case I'm not sure of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a sexual orientation. It doesn't change. 
and you know maybe uh, maybe sometimes it's a good thing uh, for uh, an gender dysphoric autogynephilic okay. male to change sex and it certainly better than getting married and then uh, leaving his family at age mm. 50 to get a sex change. Um, the thing is, we have been so, there's been so much self-censorship about mm. autogynephilia that we don't know what's best. And if there is one thing I wish would change, and I'll, I'll see what I can do, it is that we could start talking more openly about autogynephilia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's what I've been trying to do. <laughs> so thanks for helping. Yeah, me I appreciate that. it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Professor. Do you have um, Do you have any books coming out um, or research projects that you're working on right now that that will be introduced in the n- near future? Uh, I don't have any books in the works, but I certainly have research projects. Just today, uh, our new paper on furries came out. Oh. Uh, yeah. Is so, that paywalled uh, yes. or is it is it uh, out there for everybody to look at? I, I believe right now you might be able to get to see it, but you can certainly see the abstract and I'll send you personally a copy. Okay, great. Uh, but the bottom the bottom line is that uh indeed uh furries mostly have uh some to a lot of sexual motivation. Hmm. Uh but but it's what gets them off is not about um dressing as a, an animal, but it's uh, uh, fantasizing that they are these animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of analogous to autogynephilia. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you very much for your time, uh, Professor. Pleasure. Um, I'll let you know thank when you. this is up, and uh, maybe it'll end up on your listserv. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. You have a good day. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.